0: Hey everyone, welcome to the DLC Drop Podcast. My guest today is Phil Hubner. He's the Chief Business Development Officer for Challenger Mode. It's a really interesting online tournament platform that's lowering the barriers to entry for tournament organizers, players, and publishers. It's super cool. He also has an interesting story growing up in Germany and being a top competitive gamer at age 14, and he's going to tell us all about that journey all the way to the business side. He's got some interesting insights on what's coming next in esports, so... Enjoy this episode with Phil. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the The DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, Phil Hubner, Chief Business Development Officer at Challenger Mode, top competitive gamer as a teenager. Man, thank you for joining the DLC Drop Podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, so I'm super excited to have you because you're one of these people who, you know, started in competitive gaming as a player, and now you've developed your career onto the business side. So why don't you share for our audience how did that start, and give us kind of a, a brief summary of competitive gaming, getting into that, and then where you are today on the business mm-hmm. side for Challenger Mode?
1: Yeah, gladly. So you know, gaming, gaming itself for me started a long, long time ago, right? Like. 25 years ago probably when I was two three years old I started to started by playing worms maybe you remember that game Yeah a great 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 game. But I had a family that was big into big into IT you know I had an uncle who was a software engineer so he had lots of computers around and so it was just a very natural thing to, to get into and it was always PC games, right I've had a console but you know very European. Uh, to be k- kind of purely a PC gamer for right. for most of that time.
0: And where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in Germany. I'm okay. I'm, I'm German, and uh, yeah, you know, so I I started playing games like uh, Quake pretty early on. I played a lot of Counter Strike early on. I played uh, Starcraft, you know, the the original and Brood War. I played a lot of Diablo and and so on. And then you know, obviously, I, I kind of moved along with with all of those trends. So. Warcraft three came along. Played a lot of that with friends. You know, we'd we'd have these land parties. People would come over uh, to your place with their computer, and and you just play, right? But during that time, we started playing uh, a bunch of us started playing Dota together as well. And it wasn't anything serious at the time yet. And I was playing more Counter Strike online probably than I was playing Dota. And the funny thing is actually the way that I started playing Dota competitively was basically. As a result of a dare, from a from a friend in the schoolyard. Oh, really? You know? Tell me about so that. It was like uh, it was basically I don't know I don't know how old we were. Maybe maybe eleven years old. And this guy was like, "Yeah, I bet I bet you can never play with these guys, right? Like, I bet yeah, uh, you could you can never make it into one of these tournaments." So, I actually, when I was very young, or around eight nine years old, I actually started chatting online on on IRC. So I was hanging out out on Quicknet yeah. And I kind of kind of reached out to some of the people there, some of the pro players. You know, I was always fearless. So I, I just DM'd some of the Dota Dota pros of the of the time, kind of asking them about, you know, how to get how to get into this. What should I do? How should I play? Things like that. And everybody was super helpful. So I, cool. I ended up forming a team with a bunch of friends. Actually, and this is the reason that my my accent sounds the way it, it it does probably. My original team that I was practicing with was two Americans and two Canadians.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, so, yeah.
1: So so I was playing with those guys basically all throughout my summer vacation, right? So we were we were scrimming, we were playing eight hours a day, wow. uh, every single day. We were practicing against teams, and by the end of my so summer holidays is eight uh, is six weeks. Sorry, six weeks in Germany. By the end of those six weeks, we were, you know, we were beating some of the top teams in Europe when we when we really started at, at nothing, right? So, so
0: all of you at a very young age has had a real knack for games and competition, and and was it something specific about this game that you were playing, or you guys just you know kind of had that natural talent?
1: I think I think Dota is one of those games where, with no disrespect to anybody who's a Dota pro, it is. Uh, a little lower on the on the skill level. Okay, required to be a top player, yep. and it's a lot more about knowledge. It's a lot more about strategy. Okay, making the right moves at the right times. You know, Counter Strike, for instance, is a is a very highly mechanical game, right? Yes. And so, I think what helped us a lot was that we were just doing a lot of research. We were re- watching a lot of videos, <laughs> watching a lot of pro matches, kind of looking at what are these guys doing that other people aren't doing. What what should we do? Can we can we copy this and will this improve our results? And I think what really gave us a head start there and allowed us to do what we were doing was that we were one of the only people that were actually taking it that seriously, right? We were there weren't that many people around yet back then.
0: Well I was gonna say, you know, it's early days of esports and so you know it it hasn't gotten near to where it is today, of course. You don't have Mm -hmm. as many people you don't have the infrastructure. You don't have people who have a vision to that this is potentially a life opportunity, a job opportunity. And so lower barriers to entry, lower barriers of competition, probably, right?
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. I think and that's why that's why I kind of I'm always a little bit hesitant when people try to call me a pro or a former pro player just because back then, you know the competition level wasn't that high. Sure, and really, nobody was making money either. So there weren't really any professional players, at least not like they are today. Sure, today.
0: makes sense. So tell me, how, how did your mom feel about you during the six weeks playing video games eight, eight so, hours a day?
1: So she she hated it. She hated every every minute of it. Right. So she actually, when I was very young, I was always I was always glued to the computer. So my mom would literally take away my computer from me for weeks, oh, right? Wow. Uh, for weeks at a time, where she's like. Oh, you gotta like you gotta go outside and play, yeah. And uh, the way that I responded to that was instead I'd st- still stay in my room, but I'd read books. So, okay. so I didn't really
0: <laughs> books <laughs> didn't about really Dota, juggles. so you could do your research. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, just any any books. Yeah, uh, but but yeah. So no, she was not very supportive of of all of this back back in the day. Interesting, to be yeah. honest, like c- I can't blame her either, right? Because at the time there wasn't any kind of career. Insight for anybody in in the industry, of course. Very few
0: people. I think, in fact, too. Even nowadays, a lot of parents have a hard time seeing what's you know the positive aspects of gaming are, and it's just in the last couple years that it's like, hey, I can make a living doing this, and also people on the educational side, STEM, Steam, but also you know, I've, I've heard Mark Cuban say, if if I'm interviewing somebody, I know they play League of Legends. I'm more likely to hire them because I know how your brain has to work strategically to do that and how that's going to lend itself to the business world and, and and to be a great teammate in the office. So yeah, you absolutely can't blame her. I think a lot of people have that same perspective now. And one thing I have a passion about is is really helping people understand what those positive aspects are. So I, I'd love to hear from you real quick, not to interrupt your, your career path story too much, but what do you see as some of the the positive aspects of as somebody who's been in this world for a long time and uh, now has a career doing it.
1: The the positive aspect with regards to
0: with regards to competitive gaming. I mean,
1: you know, when it comes to being being in the industry or be, having been a competitive player, I think, like you said, there's a lot of strategic thinking that has to go into a lot of it. And I think that the big the biggest thing that competitive gaming does for you. Or teaches you to do is that you need to grind, right? It it's, mm. it kind of it kind of teaches you to be a part of this this hustle culture, which you know I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. I'm not going to be a promoter of it, but sure, it's it's just something that you you have to do to be at the top, right? You have to take the time and and put in the work. There's no shortcut. Of, exactly, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything out of doing nothing, right? So you you learn that sometimes sometimes it just helps uh, or it just helps a lot in general to put in 40 hours a week and and do that and you will see a lot of results out of that. So I yeah. think I think when it comes to business it's it's very similar with that, right? So so if you're if you're starting a career in in this industry, let's say let's say you're you're starting off as a as a commentator even, right? Sure. As a commentator in the industry, you'll you'll probably be pretty awful to begin with. right? But of course. putting in that time, putting in the 40 hours a week, you're going to learn so much. And even just six weeks later, like it was for me back then, you'll probably be a whole different person in terms of your ability.
0: Absolutely. I think there's something to that too, where I've, I've been thinking about this a lot is the way that you get better at stuff is by doing it. And a lot of times we can be scared to do something because it's like, oh, I don't have that experience yet, or I'm not good at that. And you can't build on something that's not there, right? You can't improve on something that you haven't started yet. And so I think there's a big lesson there for people that just start, you know, like with this podcast, Mm. I fortunately had been a guest on a number of podcasts over the last couple of years, but my first episode of this podcast was my first time ever hosting one. Mm. And what I've enjoyed so much about this process is watching the episodes, not just enjoying what the guests offer, but watching myself and saying, Oh, wait, the way I ask questions, I can do that better. Oh, I went a little too long on that. Wait, I'm not the star of the show. The guest is the star of the show, you know, and tweaking the things that I see from, you know, from episode one to today, it's kind of night and day as far as what I've learned over recording 30 something episodes. And I think what you're saying too is, is very similar.
1: I think one of the biggest things and this is some people would consider this maybe controversial but I, I always consider talent not as something that you naturally uh, inhibit you know it's not something that you're born with okay. to me talent is actually the ability to spend hours and hours and hours on the same thing without getting bored of doing that thing that's mm. really what talent is to me and and interesting anybody will get good at anything when they do that.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, I would say, in my opinion, to uh, build on that, I would say that's a talent, right? You talk about being a researcher, being fearless. I'm guessing you're probably a pretty relentless person. you talk about the grind, just continuing, continuing, continuing. I think there's so much power in the combination of consistency and time. You know, I, I have this, I have this analogy I always use that if you if you were to go to the beach and you had no previous understanding of water erosion and you were watching the waves crash against the cliffs and you said, Phil, who's winning, the water or the rock? You would say, well, clearly the rock, right? Because, I mean, look, the water bounces off of it every time. Look, this cliff has been here for who knows how long, forever, right? And it's clearly the water doesn't stand a chance. It's soft and all of these things. and But if you were to come back 20 years later, you would know that it's the water that was winning, right? And the reason is three things. It's uh, time took 20 years, number one. It's focus. It's hitting the same spot, right? And it's consistency. It's doing that again and again and again for 20 years. And with that, water can... Break through rock and in the same way I think in our business and our personal lives we can break through some things that seem impossible too
1: yeah no I I like that analogy I think that's that's a good way of putting it
0: yeah so tell so help me here so you, you gave us a little bit of an idea with your competitive uh, background so take us through how did you get into the business side of esports what age did that start for you and, and what was that first opportunity
1: yeah so uh, you know after after my Dota time, which which wasn't that long, actually, it was maybe a year and a half or two years, a game called Heroes of New Earth came out, which was, yep. you know, hailed as the successor, the the real Dota 2, you know, at the time. Right. That was long before Valve had announced the second Dota game. And at the same time, also League of Legends came out. And Heroes of New Earth was actually the more successful game when I started playing. It okay. actually had a bigger player base than League of Legends. And uh, so I started playing that, you know, I was just being a teenager other than that. I was going to school. I was like 15, 16 years old. Uh, and I I found this, I found this website, this esports website called esfireworld.com. They don't exist anymore. So I don't bother visiting the website. <laughs> uh, but they were setting out to be the, the ESPN of esports. And one of the things that they were doing was they were just kind of taking uh, esports coverage and all that stuff into the into the twenty first century, right? Everything else that it existed was kind of built in the nineties and just uh, expanded from there. So uh, it was a really cool product. They were doing a lot of really good work in StarCraft. They were doing a lot of good work in Counter Strike, and so I wrote to them and I was like, "Hey, why aren't you guys covering League of Legends and Heroes of New Earth and Dota? Those are huge games, and and they're only growing." Yeah. And uh, so I got an email back. I think a day or two later. From the, from the guy who was running the site. And he was like, yeah, you know, we don't have anybody on board who's, who's into those games, but if you want, you can, you can come and, and do that cool. with us. So, so then I joined ESFI, I built up a team there. I started working with a bunch of people. I think we grew the team to around 200 volunteers who were Ooh. editors, graphics designers, writers, basically everything that you needed to cover events, right? and now we just started covering every single event we started doing interviews we started doing a lot of things like that
0: and what age and were you at this time
1: so at that point i was 16 maybe 17 wow um,
0: and did you start as a as an as a volunteer yourself or uh, were you able to get a paid position when they no, offered it no 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 i
1: wasn't i wasn't being paid i i got paid in mouse pads and keyboards <laughs> sounds a so, lot like my
0: skateboarding career <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you know, I, since those days, I'm actually used to getting all of these stu- these things for free, right? Yeah, uh, mice, keyboards, uh, headsets—it's all—it's all always free. Uh, in, if you work in esports, right? But so, so at at 17, then uh, 17, 18, I started attending esports events on my own because I was, you know, I was in a position that I was able to. And lucky for me, Germany actually had some of the major esports events in Europe.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, you know, a lot of other European countries aren't that lucky. Yeah. And so I visited CBIT, which was back then where the Intel Extreme Masters World Championship was hosted. I visited Gamescom a few times, and this was all, you know, not paid, right? So the yeah. only thing they paid for was my fuel, my hotel. And I even have a story of kind of having to sleep in my car for a few nights because <laughs> yeah. our, our hotel reservation was canceled. And, you know, I, I I was basically doing this on no money at all, but I was meeting a lot of people, I was interviewing a lot of pro players and meeting a lot of behind the scenes people at ESL. Yeah. And then as a result of that, and because I was kind of getting tired of school, <laughs> I messaged my former boss, well, my now former boss, Michal Blikash, uh, who is the VP of pro gaming at ESL. Uh-huh. He's still to this day leading the Intel Extreme Masters, for instance. Cool. And I messaged him and uh, asked him for an internship. He welcomed me for sort of a job interview. I drove two hundred miles to to Cologne to take that job interview for an unpaid internship. wow took took that you know, took the interview, and then the next day they told me that they that I was hired. So then I moved over there on, I don't know five hundred dollars a month or something. Literally, that was my pay plus plus some some uh, support from my dad.
0: Yeah, um, so let me ask you something about that really quick. Is when you were doing this, I mean, you are clearly you're fueled by your passion, right? It's not mm-hmm. because you're making money. It's because you. I mean, even the the initial opportunity with writing the articles, you saw a need and you were so passionate about that. You you took the time to reach out and then you said, "I'm going to do that myself," mm-hmm. and sounded like you recruited you know, a couple hundred people, which takes a lot of time and communication and while you're not getting paid during this time, did you, did you have a vision of where you wanted to go and saying, I'm putting, I'm planting the seeds and I'm working now to get here. Or were you just in the moment, like a lot of young people are and just saying, this is what I want to be all about. I love games. I love Dota. And so I'm going to do everything I can without that further vision. What was that like for you?
1: I think it was it was probably a mix of both. I think I I saw an opportunity. I really believed that the industry was going to be huge. you know I was a part of that growth I was seeing it firsthand yeah and this was also at the time you know that I the, the time that I took a job at ESL was at the same time that at Justin TV that on 3 d TV were just starting to be be a thing right right and then Justin TV rebranded to Twitch TV
0: exactly
1: basically in the same year that I joined ESL so okay. you know there was this this big trajectory of growth that you were already able to see but I you know I didn't know anything about business so I I figured what is something that I can do and how can I get into this industry today mm. to to do something and and so my skill set was obviously at the time in writing it was the fact that I had a lot of knowledge about a lot of esports titles already so, you know, I understood esports formats, tournament formats, all that stuff. So it was, it was more kind of taking the bull by its horns and, and just making sure I, I get a position in esports as soon as I can.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, re- I'm pretty impressed that you saw that, you recognized that at such a young age. One of the things that people ask me all the time how do I get into esports, um, especially young people? And my answer is always volunteer. <laughs> if there's an event near you, contact the team or the organization that's that's organizing the tournament or producing it, and just offer yourself for free. Say, "I'll do whatever you want. You need me to give water bottles to the crew. you need tickets taken at the door. you need somebody to i don't know man the merch booth these are these are you're investing in your future, you're investing your time and you're building relationships. And it seems to me that there's there are few things more valuable than experience and relationships. There's no shortcut to experience, but it's tough to get it when you're unskilled or unexperienced because mm. you're not worth much. Nobody's going to pay you to do those things. And I think there can be a culture sometimes where people frown on volunteering or free internships, and um, I'd like to hear your perspective on it. Mine is, you know, most people believe in investing money right? We see compound interest and we say, oh yeah, you should save and you should put it in the stock market. And, Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't disagree that that's a smart thing to do with your money. If you're, you could argue about what you're investing in, but investing itself is pretty accepted. And what you're doing with volunteering and internships is you're investing time and you're investing more in yourself than any other way. I'd I'd love to get your thought on that. What's your perspective?
1: I, you know, I, I fully agree with that second take of investment in yourself you know i i pretty much only just now at 28 started actually investing in the stock market and and being able to put some some money into into that kind of investment yeah and i think i think for most people it should look similar right i think it's much more about investing time in yourself and making yourself more valuable because you can you know you can drive your own market value up like crazy in just a couple of years in, in your twenties, right? Yeah. And, and and so, you know, that's that's how you go from from making 400, $400 a month to a few thousand dollars a month, right? Right. And so so when it comes to volunteering itself, I think we still have a long way to go for the industry to have kind of solidified entry level positions where we can hire people and pay people that have zero experience. I think the yeah. industry isn't big enough and kind of structured enough to be there yet. So I think we've taken strides in terms of people that that have to volunteer, that have to intern to kind of get some experience. They yeah. don't have to do it for nearly as long as I had to.
0: Right. right? Okay. You, you probably
1: you probably have to take an internship for three, three, four, five months. To learn about the industry, to show your worth and to get to know some people. Yeah. But you don't have to do it for two, three years like I had to. Right. And I think that's already a, a huge step forward.
0: Well, I think too, it being such a small industry, everybody kind of knows each other to a mm. point. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about, about brands and sponsorships, specifically non endemics and how the community, I call it a healthy skepticism of letting in brands when they, when they add meaningful value to the community. But pushing away brands when it's clearly only about the brand and not about the community, I think it's almost kind of a it's almost the same thing with what you're discussing about internship is it's a barrier to entry, right? Yeah. It's like, what are you here for? Are you here just because you saw the newest silver shiny object, you know? every agency is now an eSports agency, right? or immediately has and it's like, uh, if your esports agency lead is 65 years old, I don't think they're an esports agency or they're not an esports expert. <laughs> you know, no, exactly. bring me a 23 year old. But it's interesting because what we really need, I think, in our industry is people who are there for the right reasons and who love for the community, want to build and are going to put the work in. And so while I want there to be great opportunity for everybody, it's kind of interesting that there's this barrier that. You know, are you willing to put in this time and effort to learn, grow these relationships before you're going to be able to make a living doing this?
1: And to be honest, I don't think it's it's any different than any other part of the entertainment industry, right? Unless you're the point. talent. Right. Uh, unless you're the talent. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's in music. It doesn't matter if it's in movies. You know, wherever. You're probably going to end up the water boy, right? At first. You're gonna be you're gonna be giving the staff, handing the staff bottles of water. You're gonna be carrying cables around, well, yeah. whatever it is, right? Uh, you're gonna be helping helping set up the the stage before the concert, Wh- whatever, right? That's how yeah. you get that's how you get in unless you already have the connections and unless you're you know, like I said, unless you're the artist themselves so yeah i you know i i don't think it's that tragic because also you know something that i'm experiencing obviously as somebody who works in the business and who 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 hires a lot of people in the business too is every single position that is clearly okay this is an esports partnerships manager right yeah this is somebody who's going to work with esports tournament organizers and brands and influencers and whatever, you get two, three, 400 applications for that kind of thing, even as a small company like ours, right? Right. You know, we're not, we're not a a Coca-Cola or whatever. So just the fact that there is so, so much, so much talent, so much, so many people that want to enter the industry means you have to set yourself apart somehow. Right. And having, having taken some time to volunteer, having, Having shown that you care about the industry, that you really want to be in the industry, that that helps distinguish yourself, right?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think it's a it's a situation where the the supply is greater than de- the demand, and so teams, orgs, companies can be more selective in who they bring on board. So, tell me a little bit about okay, you you got this internship at ESL, now you obviously have this leadership role at Challenger Mode. What got you to where you are from ESL to Challenger Mode?
1: Yeah, so I mean, just just like before, I think uh, a lot of it was just never being afraid. Maybe, maybe even to the to the extent that I was a little bit arrogant, uh, right? Where you know there was never anything that I felt was too hard or too much for me. Uh Right, I always wanted more, so I I always kind of applied myself, tried to do more, tried to. Get into a sort of higher level positions and and uh, just kind of do more, right? And so yeah. that already happened at ESL, and then from ESL where I was for four years, and kind of moving from an internship position to kind of leading all of the communications and the web presence and all of that stuff for the Intel Extreme Masters, uh, you know. And I was a sponsorship liaison there too, kind of working with all the different sponsors. Making sure that all the deliverables with sponsors were met, things like that. To kind of thinking, okay, you know, I have outgrown what I can achieve here. I, I felt like I had hit a hit a brick wall. Yeah. So uh, I started applying for jobs in in other parts of the gaming and especially esports industry, and was lucky enough to get a job at at Twitch, where I was in charge of promotions. So okay. generally all all of content marketing, email marketing and so on with a specific focus on esports at first. Cool. Yeah. And and then I there too I moved on to doing the same thing for all of Europe to pitching to the then the senior vice president of marketing, hey, there's this position here that I think is necessary and I want to fill that position which was the position of international marketing manager taking care of kind of uh, a lot of the international communication with all the local teams. So pitching that position myself to our VP, right, I then took that job and kind of went from there. But that still wasn't enough for me. I I, I still felt like I could do more. And, And I was really, I was learning a lot about business development. I really thought partnerships was something that I wanted to do and working more with game developers and publishers and so on. So at some point, I took the leap, went freelance, worked with a bunch of influencers, worked with a bunch of other clients. From from casinos to brands to game publishers, helping them understand Twitch, helping them understand esports. Yeah, you know this was for two two years or so, and okay. then I joined an esports team there that I was helping. A team called Clash. They recently announced a partnership with I think, AC Milan, the football club. Okay, yeah, it helped them build that from the ground up. And then at some point, I I met the CEO of of Challenge Mode, Rebel Ephraim. who, who, you know, he he really wanted me on board. So, you know, two months later, I think I joined the company and committed to moving over to
0: Sweden. That's awesome. So tell us what is Challenger Mode and what does that provide the community?
1: Yeah, so Challenger Mode at its foundation, we see ourselves as the, you know, the railroads of eSports, right? We see ourselves as the infrastructure. So we build a lot of tech that automates a lot of sort of the administration and the operations of running esports competitions of all sorts, right? Mm. So be that matchmaking or tournaments or leagues, it doesn't matter. We, we kind of have this all-encompassing product that helps game developers have this for their games. Okay. That helps tournament organizers utilize this t- kind of tech to host their competitions and that helps players obviously have a very seamless experience when playing in tournaments so they can very easily join and and it's it's all it's all automated right so and when i when I say automated, I mean when you join a tournament you it's pretty much two clicks and you're in a game you just play the game and you don't have to report your scores or anything like that it's all all fully automated
0: cool so you're kind of making it just very very easy for everybody in the online tournament world from the publisher to the TOs to the players to just simplify it, lowering the barriers to entry to enable people to compete is what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, our goal with that is is to turn competitive play and organized play into something that a lot more people also just do for fun.
0: Yeah. Right? The easier um, it is to do something, the more you're going to get of it, right?
1: Exactly. And, and so the way that we see that is... If so, first of, there's a huge audience of influencers, right? Streamers out there that that have, in our eyes, huge value from doing something like this by engaging their community, right? Right. Just playing tournaments with with their community, playing tournaments with their fans. That's something that we enable, and it's very easy to do. Normally, they need you know admins and people who have experience. We kind of our software does it all for them. And then the other big thing is just kind of being able to allow the hyper-local. And what I mean by that is we want uh, a small town to be able to host their own a large-scale eSports league without having any staff to do so, which uh-huh. lowers the cost of running an eSports league so much that we're enabling everybody to do so, right? And cool. obviously, the more competitions there are in the world, the more people will actually play in them. And hopefully, that will build up a much more healthy sort of grassroots level, supplying both new pro players, but yeah. also new organizers, right? New people that actually work in the industry and organize and host these kinds of things. Right. That that are then you know potential staff or companies in esports.
0: That's cool. I know specifically with the cities and mayors and people like that, typically they've heard of esports because they know that's all kids are doing now. They see the metrics of, you know, everything declining from viewership of traditional television and traditional sports to participation in traditional sports and they say, "Okay, I I've had a lot of conversations with these people. Esports, what do I do? What does that mean for me? How do I do the esports?" <laughs> you know, and what you're doing it sounds like is it's taking away that confusion and it's making it easy and it's say, "Just do this." You know, click twice here. And when people are, I don't know, I can see it with parents too. You know, I'm a, I'm a parent. I have a five-year-old son and he's not yet to the age where he's doing things that I'm confused about, (laughs) but I'm I'm sure very soon he's going to be doing stuff. And you know, if, if as a parent, you know, or, or somebody of a community is not only confused, but a little intimidated of like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. You're going to avoid doing it. Right. And you're going to also have that separation between the competitors, and then the people who want to get into it and understand it. So that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, coming from coming from Europe, we have, especially in Germany, with with things like f- football, you know, soccer. Yep. Well, there's there's all these systems in place, right? Where a seventy year old can join a league in their local town or their local village, and there there will probably be multiple teams that belong to that that town. For different age groups, and it's very easy to start, get started to start playing. And then there's, you know, division systems that allow you to kind of play your way up. And it's, it just makes a lot of sense. And it's very, very easy to do. Right. And so this creates a, you know, some people just do it for fun, but it also creates a solid funnel of pro soccer players that, that come out of this system. Right. Because it, it has been so easy for tons of people to participate. And, you know, that that brings me to uh, this is always a very controversial topic too. female, female pro players. Right. Women, women in in esports, the the problem there is simply the the number of people that actually play at sort of the bottom level, the number of women that play Mm -hmm. uh, competitively is so, so minuscule that Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, the top 0.01 percent is so much less. Than the number of male gamers right and, and right. it all just comes down to that it just it's a numbers game so right. by making that easier we're also hoping that then there's more more female gamers in the future that kind of make it to the top and that actually join the join the pro leagues because obviously you know there aren't any physical limitations in in right. esports like there are in traditional sports
0: yeah it's a good point if you and one one thing that i love i commented on this the other day on an article is the thing that, one of the things i love about our community is not everything's perfect, but I, I see our community addressing the issues that aren't perfect, and it's not turning a blind eye to it. It's not saying, "Oh, that doesn't matter." But when you look at, uh, I think inclusion is a big thing, diversity, both you know, male, female, but also you see, you see it racially as well, where you're trying to bring in, <clears throat> you know, more diversity onto the stage. And what I love is like what you're pointing out is like, no, we recognize this issue and we want to fix it. But it's a really good point that you know what, the top, I don't know, pro players in any sport is going to be about 0.3% sort of a thing. And so it just comes down to, like you said, a numbers game. If you have less of a population actually competing, you're going to have far fewer people who are that 0.3%. I also think it's really interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, minority communities and stuff like that, because it's not too dissimilar from including more women, where it's, I think, Including more women is is more broadly because it's just that's generating interest and getting more women, girls that are comfortable and um, interested in competing. But when we look at minority groups in different places all over the world, there's there's a a cost, there's there's a barrier to entry from a cost perspective. Mm. Talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you guys have thought about or are targeting to increase that diversity?
1: Yeah, so you know, j- just if you look at if you look at our vision of kind of automating everything and making it as easy as possible to run leaks and to participate yeah. in leaks, right? That obviously, like I said, lowers the cost a lot. And and something that I always an analogy I like to use is, especially given that I was at Twitch back in the day, right? Is that we want to do to to esports and to esports competitions what Twitch did to broadcasting, mm. which is that anybody can do it from their bedrooms. Yes. Yeah like ninja ninja can host uh, host a stream to 200,000 people from his bedroom right. no problem and we want you to be able to run a league for 10 20,000 people from your bedroom uh, right. without any any external help so that alone should help a lot of people that might not otherwise have the means you know kind of get get into this space and to me to me that's a very very important topic because obviously you know e- esports is one of those things that it's just incredibly, or it can be incredibly accessible, right? Most of the, most sure. of the esports titles out there, like the League of Legends, like Counter-Strike, they play on, on almost any computer too, right? And a lot of nations around the world, like, like Brazil, like Korea, people play from internet cafes more than they play from home.
0: Well, a lot of these titles are going to mobile as well.
1: Yes, for sure. And mobile is another, another part. And you know, that's obviously also something that we're tackling is mobile and console esports and and so the the barrier of entry is so much lower than most other sports and and i think that that alone is going to make a big big difference
0: i'm curious if you've gotten any pushback at all from the tournament organizing community who says wait a minute you're automating this is something happening to my job you know is there is is that a factor in any way in in what you guys have been dealing with?
1: So I, I I honestly don't think so because uh, in most cases, you know, most people haven't, most people don't have this dream of, Hey, I want to, I want to be a tournament administrator, right? It's being a tournament administrator is basically, it's kind of, it's kind of data entry Uh with, with customer support, right? It's, you're dealing with angry teams and you we're just we're just cutting all of that out right so sure. i think when it comes to today's tournament administrators a lot of them would be happy to be able to kind of take a step up instead and say okay you know you know what now i can host my own tournaments okay. instead of just kind of doing doing this this part of it so i i hope that we're helping people elevate to the to the next level there Rather than than the opposite, but to be honest, no, we we haven't heard any any sort of concerns or anything like that.
0: Cool, yeah, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from. You know, there's there's a lot of things in the, the just the, what is required from a tournament organizer that's probably not fun or is a lot of work and just makes more heavy lifting. Or and so to be able to say, I experienced experience this in my own business. There's a lot of like data entry that I need to do. There's follow-ups. There's you know. Yeah, everybody's contact information who I've been talking to that I need to put in an Excel doc or upload to Salesforce or something like that. And it's like, man, if something could do this for me, Mm. I could really focus on what I love to do and what I do best. Right. And so I think that's pretty cool. You might have a number of tournament organizers who want to be hosts or want to be casters. And, you know, they found the opportunity that like, hey, I just have a knack and I have an understanding and experience in organizing tournaments which is pretty unique from the, the the broad population, but because of this, it's going to enable me to do this because I don't have to worry about the data entry piece or these these more mechanical parts of it that can be automated.
1: Hmm. Exactly. But but also, you know, if we're if we're able to increase the number of people that are actually hosting tournaments, if we're able to vastly yeah. add to the number of tournaments that are being hosted in the world, then there's probably also more people working on that.
0: Right. I, I think and you're right. Long-term. What I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is kind of a uh, pipeline or pathway to pro. It's not something that we really see right now. I think it'll very quickly increase cuz we see, you know, high schools, junior highs, colleges are all over the world are, are are starting to implement esports. But can you tell the audience number 1, what's the current pathway to pro if there's any at all other than mm-hmm. like scouts watching Twitch? <laughs> Or and what do you see as that pipeline or pathway developing?
1: Yeah. so you know the that pathway, it kind of looks different depending on what game you're talking about, right? and that that alone is is kind of worrying. yeah, uh, and even within the games, it it differs from region to region. so one one good example, for instance, and one bad example is is League of Legends, both at the same time, okay where uh, there was a big discussion around this on Twitter recently uh, about how there's not a lot of new talent being generated in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there there is actually a, a big influx of new talent, and there's constantly new players rotating in and out of the pro league here in Europe.
0: Yeah, League and, of Legends is an interesting uh, title because globally it's number one, and brands that don't have the context or the information to go deeper you know, by region or by country... If if you have a global footprint, League of Legends is, a, is is a great one to look at with a very large audience. But then when you look at the U.S., you know it's it's not the biggest game here. So very interesting. Keep going. Yeah,
1: yeah. But so so what what happens there is because there isn't really any system. There's just the pro league, right? There's just right. the the NBA or the the NFL or whatever, which is called the L- LCS in North America, right? And there's no real uh, big structure underneath that. Here in Europe, Riot have done a good job, in my eyes, in building something that they call the EU Masters, okay, which is sort of this pan-European tournament where teams from each country league qualify into this tournament. And that's kind of a showcase of of local talent. And then yeah. and, and a lot of regions here in Europe and a lot of countries here in Europe have local leagues that are kind of like, Two two steps removed from the from the pro league, right? So there is a league mm. that exists that people go through. But in most other games, that doesn't exist, right? So right. in most other games, the only way to become a pro player is basically, you know, find a find a group of people to play with, play competitively. You'll probably ditch half of your friends along the way. Find a new ch- team, ditch some more of your friends because you'll always, you know, the the people that are actually dedicated enough to make it to pro, they'll probably always eclipse a lot of their their friends over time. Yeah. So and, and so you you kind of rotate through and th- through teams and and at some point you you probably end up in a in a team that's that's kind of competitive. You hopefully participate in some kind of qualifier or tournament where where some where you beat some top teams narrowly, right? right. That kind of thing. And then you're scouted as a result. I, I, I would say that's the only real the only real way to get discovered. So
0: And that is the that is not a direct path at all. That if you think about all those barriers, you think I'm thinking about basketball here in the US and AAU basketball has become something really big over the last few years. And it's like in fact, you know, broader thing that's happening is kids are focusing on one sport just from day one, you know, and it's like you're gonna be a football player, you play football you know, American football from day one and you don't play anything else or AAU. And there's a very specific pipeline. And in basketball, you know, it goes, okay, you're on the AAU team, then you get recruited to a college because you still have to go to college or have one year between high school and the pros. And then you're going to go to the pros. That's extremely straight. If if I was to tell you, hey, how are you going to become a professional basketball player? You could say, Oh, X, Y, Z, right? We've seen a million people do it, but what you did just described—I mean, it's almost shocking that anybody gets there. Yeah,
1: I mean, you—you you essentially almost have to be a pro player to become a pro player. Right? <laughs> that's what thats, a, that's <laughs> what chicken or made. the egg, yeah, yeah. So you know, there are games that are working on that, and funny enough, in a lot of games, when people are kind of kind of set their mind on, okay, I want to be a pro gamer. Yeah. A lot of people switch to a new game, right? So, uh, let's say uh, like Valorant, Valorant came around, right? Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people just said, "Okay, you know what? I never made it in Overwatch, I never made it in Counter-Strike. This is my chance." And then they went and they they started playing that and tried playing competitively from day 1, and it's Right. You know, it kind it kind of makes sense to be to be early because that means there there aren't another 200 or even 2,000 players out there that have thousands of hours more in the game than you, right? Right. You're you're there from the start. Everybody kind of starts from the same same level, so...
0: You know what's a real... I have another thing that just popped in my head, an interesting sentiment, very different than when you started playing games, I'm sure, is, and it's similar in skateboarding, which is my, you know, main background, but is nowadays in skateboarding, Every kid wants to get sponsored from day one. You get when I started skating, I didn't even know I could ever be sponsored, you know? And then a few years later that that worked itself out, but in esports, I think a lot of kids are getting into it and from day one they say I want to be a pro gamer. And when you started, that wasn't even a thing. What is does do you feel that that takes a little bit of the soul out of it or do you think that it's a good thing uh, for the industry?
1: You know, I think it's good that there is a way to make money, right? Yeah. I think it's a good thing that there is something at the, at the end of the tunnel. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it is important that we build up as an industry, that we build up a, a lower level of, of the whole space where people play just to play, yeah. play to get better, play to be competitive, and maybe play for opportunities as opposed to money. Right, I think that's okay. that's one of the things that I'm I'm a big fan of. What do you mean uh, by you know, that? A lot of play
0: for opportunities instead of money.
1: So a lot of a lot of esports teams nowadays are doing uh, you know academy teams and things like that, right? A lot of esports teams are, yeah. are starting their own academy programs of like you know there's these pro players that are going to coach you and and things like that. And I think one of the things that I'm a big fan of is what if you just let people play? You know, you let people play in a tournament. And the price of the tournament isn't money. The price of the tournament is literally that you get coached by the team's coach for a month, right? Oh, by that's this cool. pro team coach, that sort of thing.
0: Interesting. I think yeah.
1: I think if there were more projects, more opportunities like that around, that would be very, very interesting. Because obviously the other thing that this does is it gives you credentials, right? Mm. And if you can't get if if you can't get credentials, the only thing that matters is money, right? So True. so once you build up a, a world where there are credentials that are taken seriously within just this play, the playing space, the money kind of becomes the second second thing, secondary thing.
0: Yeah, if you have the credentials, the money will come. Exactly. The other thing too that pops in my head is I think anybody who gets into esports is just the sole focus. If I want to make money doing this, is going to burn out. Because if you don't have just that love for the game and just like, oh my gosh, I Mm. love the act of playing. I love being with my teammates. Like I live and breathe this stuff. What it takes to be a pro gamer. You talked about the grind a little earlier. Mm. If all you care about is, I want to make a lot of money doing this. Number one, extremely rare Mm. that you're going to get there, especially right now as this pathway, this pipeline Mm. is not fully developed. But number two... Man, when you're playing games 16 hours a day and it's not fun anymore and the only thing is is like I hope I get my shot one day, that's probably not going to work out. That's not that's not a recipe for success.
1: You know, something that I think is important for people to realize too is that programmers don't actually make that much money. Right? There are very few that that actually do. Yeah. There's you know, it's almost a handful of people that that are esports millionaires, sure. right? Yeah. And most other players are are lucky to have sort of a office job uh, salary from being a pro player, even at the sure. top. Right. Interesting. Uh, depending yeah. it depends on the game, obviously. If you it win the international, the game, you're
0: probably on- good. But if not <laughs> a exactly, more challenging. Exactly.
1: So there's, you know, there's a, a ton of pro players, famous pro players that people will have heard of that'll make three, 000, four thousand dollars a month, right? Right. So it's really not it really can't be about the money at all. Uh, mm, and good point. to be honest, to be honest I think most people who make it those aren't the people that care about the money at all. Those are the people that care purely about the competition. And I think that yeah. that's actually that's actually something that has been very difficult for esports to overcome is that there are these people, you know, esports esports is show business, right? Right. And it's not just competition. It's, it's also the show business. It's yep. fifty it's like a fifty fifty thing. Yeah. And there are a lot of pro players who are really good at the competition but really bad at the at the show business.
0: Right. So absolutely. Uh, That's why you have streamers and then you have hmm. pro players. It's like, I don't know if you want to bring a pro to this activation because I don't know if they can or they have an interest in talking to anybody. It's like, hmm. where's my controller? You know, for exactly. a lot of them. Yeah
1: and and so most of these people uh a lot of these people that i've met a lot of these pro players that i've met that are entirely focused on competition they don't care for the showbiz at all they hate going on camera yeah, they hate doing interviews they yeah. they hate being in the spotlight right they all they want to do is play the game and win mm. and and i think i think it's a very different sort of mindset for for both of those things
0: i love that I really appreciate you sharing that as we, we come to the end of this episode, and I so appreciate your time and all these insights that you're providing. I'll give you a choice of what you want to answer here. Either tell me what is the next thing you see coming in esports or tell me what can we look forward with challenger mode and what should we keep an eye on for that?
1: I can give you a very quick answer to both. Great. So w- with Challenge Mode, you know something that we're doing now, obviously, is we're moving to North America. We're uh, moving to Latin America too. We're doing more there. We're trying to work with more people there. And we're trying to innovate when it comes to how do people com- compete, how much can keep people compete and just get people to play more. Yeah. Right? It's all about getting people to just Get into teams and play more than they do today. So right. I think that's that's what our focus is and and kind of what to keep an eye on with regards to us. What's the next big thing for esports? I think there's there's uh, a number of things. Okay. One thing that I'm personally very excited about is the is actually uh, sim racing. Okay. Yeah. I think I think the racing racing as a sport is something that's incredibly fun that a lot of people enjoy. It's something that is actually kind of hard to watch in person. If you've ever been to a race, it's kind of boring, uh, even if you're into racing, because most of the time you're just sitting there next to the track and you just see the cars come by once every few minutes and that's it, right? Right. But if you take it virtual, you remove that. You can be in in the seat of one of the cars and and you're there, right? Formula One has fixed this through helmet cameras, right? Where you can watch through helmet cameras, things like that. So, so that's one big part. The, the other big part to me is racing as a sport to participate in is probably the most inaccessible sport in the world because it's incredibly expensive. Yes. Right? If you, if you want to buy a race car, you're down $100,000, <laughs> $100, right? You, you do a race, you race for a day, you practice for a day, that's probably $5,000 worth of tires that you've just gone through.
0: Gas. Right? So, exactly, gas too. Yeah, all um, the things. Well, wow. it's, it's
1: basically impossible to participate in as somebody who wants to get into the sport and, and the the way that people get into racing, at least my understanding today is, is kind of you start with go karting, right? Yeah. And then you kind of work your way up to bigger and bigger cars, but even go karting is it can be pretty, pretty pricey.
0: Mm.
1: So just that accessibility fa- factor. Yeah, Getting into racing is so much higher. So I, th- I think there's a lot of potential in, in that sport in terms of participation and so on.
0: And I think um, two things to add to that is what we saw this with eNASCAR, when NASCAR kind of pivoted to digital option during COVID. Number one, the act of doing it is very similar to the act of actually racing. And then number two is the watchability factor is that I, I had a friend, he said, My dad watches NASCAR every Sunday. He'll sit there and watch NASCAR every Sunday. And last Sunday it was eNASCAR, and guess what? He sat there and he watched the entire thing like he does regular NASCAR because it looks there's not in simulator games like NBA Two K and Madden. There's a big difference between live competition and avatars competing, Hmm. but in racing, it's a lot closer to the traditional form of racing. Yeah,
1: it's almost one to one, right? And and I think that also means that. That gives uh, game developers, actually, the opportunity to innovate, to make things more exciting, yeah. to, to get make things more dangerous, right? True. You can take risks that you can't otherwise take because it's your life on the line, right? right? So, so that's one of the things that I'm really excited about. And to your point, there is one story that I remember of a virtual Formula One driver who actually raced against real Formula 1 drivers. No, F- Formula E drivers, I think it was. Right. He won. Yes. And he, he won against the real pro drivers. Right. Because he was the best in the simulation too. Right. Um, and, and that just and shows translated. how they are. Yeah. Yeah. And that just got me really, really excited about the future of that. But I know I know we're running out of time. So the other big thing is mobile eSports, right? Yep. I think I think mobile eSports, it's something where a lot of people are still very elitist. You know, it's it, if it's played on a mobile, it can't be a real eSport or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just with the, again, coming back to accessibility, anything that's going to be played by millions or hundreds of millions of people is, is probably, there's a potential there for the top 0.00001% to want to compete, right? That's right. Uh, and the the more people play a game, the easier it is to have an audience that want to watch that game because they can relate to the game and, and, and to what's happening, right? So with the numbers we're seeing in mobile gaming today, it's actually, to me, surprising that mobile esports isn't bigger already than it mm. is today in terms of the viewership numbers and so on. So that's one that I'm, I'm really looking forward to.
0: Cool. I appreciate that. That I'm talking to somebody who's big into mobile esports next week. So that'll be that perfectly tease it up. Well, as nice. we wrap this up, first of all, thank you so much for your time and being here. How can get people get a hold of you and get a hold of Challenger Mode?
1: Yeah. So you know, Challenger Mode is on on all all your social media channels. Just add Challenger Mode. You know, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook and all that's all that good stuff. And obviously, challengermode.com. And, uh, myself, you can find me on Twitter at Phil Hubner and, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here on the DLC drop podcast. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story and your deep, unique insights. It's going to add a lot of value to our audience.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the DLC drop podcast. This podcast is part of the eSports Futuri podcast network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.